I want to say welcome to all of you, especially if you're a guest, maybe around here for the first time. We're delighted to be with you today and hope today is meaningful for you. Hope today is lasting. Hope it isn't just a worship service, but it is an encounter with the God of the universe. And it was about this time of year and there was a northern gentleman who was visiting this small southern town, and he visited the uh, town square where there was a nativity scene set up. And this nativity scene demonstrated great skill and talent. It took a lot of that to create this thing. But one small feature about this town's nativity scene bothered him. The three wise men in the display, they were all wearing firemen's helmets. And that was weird to this Yankee gentleman. And he stood there for a while pondering why in the world the three wise men would be wearing firemen helmets. And he was unable to come with a, up with a reason or an explanation. And so he's like, I'm out of here. I, I can't, I don't get it. And uh, he was driving out of town. He needed to stop at a convenience store to get some gas. And he pumped his gas. And then he went inside. And he said, well, I'll just ask this woman. I'm sure she's a local. She'll know exactly why it is that the three wise men at the town's nativity scene are wearing firemen's helmets. And she, he asked her. And she just immediately, she must have been having a bad day, she exploded into a rage, screaming at him, you Yankees, you never do read the Bible, do you? And he, he was quite taken aback. He's like, ma'am, I promise I absolutely read the Bible. It's just that the Bible I read, I don't ever recall seeing firemen in the Bible. And so she had a Bible behind the counter. Of course she did. And so she jerked it out from behind the counter and she ruffled some pages. She finally jabbed her finger at this passage and he shoved it into the man's face and said, see, it says it right here. The three wise men came from afar. We should pray. God, we're delighted to be here. We're delighted to be with you. We're delighted, God, to be celebrating you today. And God, I pray that as a community and as individuals and as families, God, that you would help us be about what you really intend for Christmas time to be about. That, God, this wouldn't just be a hustle bustle hubbub of a season, God, but that these days and these weeks would be about worship of you. And God, I pray that our worship of you wouldn't just be like an Advent Christmas time deal. But God, that our worship of you would be seven days a week, 24 hours a day, because you are our God and you are worthy. So come and meet with us and speak into our hearts and change us, God. We love you. Amen. Today we started this brand new series that's going to run right up to our Christmas Eve services. And the series is called Advent Redux, A Christmas Tradition Made New. And there's a little word of explanation about the title of this series. That word Advent, first of all, we hear it a lot, but where in the world does it come from? The word Advent has its root in the Latin word Adventus, which simply means coming. It starts to make sense. Coming, right? Historically speaking, this season of Advent is the centuries-old liturgical church tradition of expectantly waiting for the arrival of the God-man, the Christ child, in the weeks that lead up to Christmas. And then the word redux, maybe you've used it before, it simply means brought back. And in case you hadn't noticed, around Journey, we're not much of a liturgical church, 
are we? We don't do much high church stuff around here. No robes, right? No incense, no responsive readings typically. And we don't not do that because it's bad stuff. It's just we're working off another plan as a community. But when it comes to this high church tradition of Advent, Brandon, our lead worshiper, and I, we both felt quite compelled that we as a community, by not embarking on the Advent journey, are missing out on a very helpful bit of what it means, what it is to actually ready ourselves. To ready ourselves. Just as Christ followers for literally thousands of years have been doing for the commemoration of Christ's birth, which we're going to celebrate just a few short weeks from now on Christmas Day. And thus was born this message series, Advent Redux, a Christmas tradition made new. And it's our aim in these three weekends, culminating in both of those Christmas Eve services, to bring back and to attempt to make new this age-old tradition of Advent toward a more meaningful Christmas season for our families, for us individually, and for us as a church community. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn in it to Mark chapter 1 verse 3. Matthew, then the book of Mark, second book in the New Testament. Mark chapter 1 verse 3. We're going to be in a couple of different texts today, but we're going to start with Mark 1 3 because it's from these very words that the central theme of the season of Advent all descends out of. Mark chapter 1 verse 3. You can follow along on the side screens if you don't have a text. Mark 1 3 says this, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. These words are penned by the gospel writer Mark. He penned them into his gospel. They're actually from the book of Isaiah. They're referring to a man named John the Baptist. You know the story. It was John the Baptist's job, see, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord and Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, in ancient days, it was customary that whenever notable people were to come to a city, the roads would be prepared, the roads would be made new, the roads would be cleared, so that that important dignitary's journey into the city would be made much easier. And John the Baptist spoke these words, prepare the way of the Lord at a time, see, when the people of Israel were wandering in this vast spiritual wilderness. Why? Well, it was a vast spiritual wilderness they were wandering in because, see, there was this roughly 400-year period from the conclusion of the ministry of the Old Testament prophet Malachi, who was the last Old Testament prophet, until the ministry of John the Baptist and his announcement, the arrival of the Christ child, see. Because it was God's silence during this period, it's referred to affectionately as the 400 silent years. And within those 400 silent years, the political, the religious, and the social atmosphere of Palestine had changed significantly. And I do not mean for the better. Within those 400 years, the people of Palestine had seen their world turned upside down. Their nation had been conquered and overrun by two different pagan empires. Not just one, but two. Their temple had been desecrated and defiled by pagan worship rituals that literally were the equivalent of religious rape in the high temple of God himself. The people of Palestine were subjected to a confiscatory tax policy by the Roman occupiers, and there was no sign whatsoever of God's presence. 
No sign of his voice. No sign of his care anywhere to be seen. And it was in the midst of God's apparent detachment during that 400-year silent period that the Jews became really despondent. They looked across their formerly glorious nation and found themselves once again, as it happened so many times throughout the rest of the Old Testament, a conquered, an oppressed, and a polluted people. It's easy, it's very easy to see how their hope would have been running low, how their level of faith in the God who had repeatedly promised his deliverance and rescue would have been even lower, right? But it was the message of John the Baptist that broke that 400 years of silence. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. From Mark 1.3. And see, it was this very message that the people of God had been waiting some 400 years to hear. They were rightly convinced that the only thing that could save them, that could save their nation, that could salvage their faith, was the appearance of the Messiah. And John the Baptist's message was just that, that the Messiah, that the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of the Jews, was about to be on the scene, was about to open his public ministry. John the Baptist, see, he was the forerunner. He was the forerunner of the one who would lead the people out of their 400-year spiritual wilderness in what would be the second exodus, see. The exodus that would bring them and the rest of the world salvation. The central theme of this season of Advent is that we would actually follow the direction of John the Baptist. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. But understand this. John's direction has nothing to do with preparing for a Christmas meal or gathering Christmas gifts to give, nor preparing for the office Christmas party, or anything else that so typically comes with the season, but rather has everything to do with the preparation of our hearts for the arrival of the one who has come so that we might experience life the way that God intends life to be lived. And I want you to know, I love Christmas. I'm not a hater of Christmas. I absolutely love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas. In all honesty, a bit less commercialism would be quite all right with me, but I'm not all like hung up on that. I'm not crawling into a hole and emerging on December 26th or anything like that. I especially love about Christmas time what my wife does to our house this time of the year. She started a couple of days after Thanksgiving, and it is spectacular what she's done inside of our house. She strings garland around places that I didn't know that garland could be strung. She starts hauling a couple of days after Thanksgiving. She starts hauling up all of these tubs out of our crawl space. And she just, like, one after another after, I'm like, I didn't know our crawl space was that big. And up it comes and up it comes. Like, honey, what, what are you, are you relocating everything in the crawl space? She's like, no, just getting the Christmas decorations. I'm like, how many do we have? My word. There's lights all over the inside of the house, a few on the outside, a lot on the inside. I sometimes worry that we have so many Christmas lights running during this time of the year that it will actually require me to go out to the side of the house, that box that's on the side of the house, that it will require me to open that thing up and actually squirt some WD-40 on that electric meter that's spinning around so rapidly because of the electric drain. 
over there at our house. And she plays Christmas music. Holy cow, Dana plays Christmas music. Now, when we first got married, like with many young married guys, I put my foot down strongly on the Christmas music thing, right? I was, she'd like try to pull it out the day after Halloween, and I was like, uh-uh, one holiday at a time. You can pull the Christmas music out the day after Thanksgiving. I think she rebelled. I think while I was at work and such, she was playing Christmas music and in her car and sneaking. She's quite a rebellious one, that Dana is, right? <laughs> Over the years, you'll be happy to know, I've lightened up quite a bit on the Christmas music. Now she plays it like the day after Halloween. Out it comes. And I'm all right with that. And the Christmas tree, right? I love this Christmas tree deal. I love our Christmas tree. I have this little ritual where I drive over to, I'm embarrassed to tell you, our storage unit where we have all this stuff that we don't know what to do with, but there the Christmas tree lives most of the year, and I haul it back, and I put it in the garage, and then the children say, Daddy, when are you bringing the Christmas tree inside? And I wait until the right time, and I bring it inside, and I put it together, and then I get incredibly disheartened because there's thousands of lights that are burned out on it, and you can never find which little bulb, and... Kind of a nightmare, you know what I'm talking about, right? And the kids the other night, we decorated it just this week, and the kids, they just have a ball with the Christmas tree thing, right? And it almost falls over, the Christmas tree does, because there's only one really little spot where they like to put the ornaments, and so it like is falling over that way, you know what I'm talking about, but Dana gets all that fixed up, and it is spectacular, it looks fabulous. And I love Christmas, and I love the decorations, and I watch... Especially this year, I've been watching. I've been watching the energy that our family has expended to decorate our house for this one, basically one month season. And I came to this striking, and it's a very personal revelation. And I came to it just a few days ago. That I and our family too, because I'm responsible for the culture of our family, right? That we don't actually do very much by way of heart preparation, around this time of year. That I and therefore our family don't do very much around John the Baptist directive from Mark chapter one verse three from a couple thousand years ago to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. We do all this other stuff, but we do very little in here to prepare the way for the Lord's coming, to clear the road for him. And I want you to know that this is very personal for me. I'm not talking about this to like thwack anyone upside the head or to put a finger in anyone's chest for what you do or what you don't do at Christmas to follow John's directive. I'm only talking about this with you because I want you to know what's stirring up in my heart. And maybe for you it becomes something of an invitation to your family to think about this year. But it's just an invitation. What I notice to be true for myself and therefore our family is that we do actually quite a lot in the realm of the opposite of John the Baptist's instruction concerning the celebration, the real meaning of the arrival, the coming of Jesus. I'm looking at our calendar. I'm looking at our pace. I'm looking at our shopping list and our Christmas card list and the gatherings we'll attend. And I'm looking at this heap of stuff and I'm going like, I'm pretty sure that around the Hopkins house that we're actually hauling stuff out onto the road that we're supposed to be clearing for the arrival of the Savior of the world. And instead of clearing the road, we're like cluttering it all up with all of this other Christmas time stuff that obstructs, that actually obscures this inner heart work that God wants to do in us around the arrival of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. 
and Advent Redux is about the invitation back to John the Baptist's directive that all of us would prepare the way for the Lord's coming, that we would clear the road for him, that we wouldn't like haul stuff out onto the road and clutter it up, but that we would clear the road for him in our hearts, right in here. And if the central theme on the Advent journey on the way to Christmas is waiting and preparation and expectation, light then becomes the most powerful symbol of this Advent season, right? Look at what Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 says about light. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Isaiah is speaking thousands of years prior about the arrival of Christ. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. The promise of Jesus Christ. And in the weeks leading up to Christmas, God's people wait expectantly for the arrival of the light of the world, the Messiah, the Savior, who erases the darkness of sin and shame and removes the alienation of people, of humanity, from God. And we use this thing called an Advent wreath as the platform for this powerful symbol of light all throughout the Advent season. Christ followers have been doing it for thousands of years. And you can see we have our very own Advent wreath right here. Pastor Sam Summers, he designed it and he built this. It is a remarkable piece of art, in my opinion. And just so we're clear, he is not available for hire. Right? Thanks, Sam. Way to go. And you can see that the Advent wreath, it's quite a simple thing, actually. A circular wreath with five candles, four around the wreath, one in the middle. But everything about the Advent wreath, though it's quite simple, is actually a symbolic vehicle that tells the entire Christmas story. The circle of the wreath, first of all, is a reminder of God himself of God's eternality, of God's endless love and mercy that has neither beginning or end, symbolic of God himself, the circle. The green of the wreath. The green of the wreath is a reminder of the hope that we have in God himself, the hope of newness, the hope of renewal, the hope of eternal life that's found only in God. And then there's the candles of the wreath. They're the symbols of the light of God. The light of God that has come into the world through the birth of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Those four outer candles, they represent that period, that season of expectant waiting and preparation during the weeks of Advent, which themselves, those four candles, they symbolize the four centuries, that 400 years of waiting for the voice and presence of God. From Malachi's last words to John the Baptist's proclamation and the announcement of Christ's arrival. Three of the four candles of the wreath, they're purple. That might look like maroon to you, but that is purple, just so you know. Why purple? Because purple is the color of royalty. Royalty. The king of kings and the lord of lords. No one is more royal, no one is more regal than Jesus Christ. That third candle of the wreath is pink to help lift the tone of Advent to a more celebrative tenor. And then there's the light of the candles. 
The light of the candles become the most powerful symbol, as I said, of the season of Advent. The light of the candles reminds us that Jesus is indeed the light of the world, which has come into the darkness of our lives, into the darkness of our world, to bring us newness, to bring us life, and to bring us hope. It's also the reminder to us, to we who follow Jesus Christ, that it is our mission, our express mission, to be lights to the world who reflect God's grace to every single person around us, every single person we're ever in contact with. And as those candles are lit throughout the Advent season, it symbolizes the darkness of fear and of hopelessness receding and the shadows of sin falling away as more and more and more of the light of Christ is shed and is cast into the world. The flame of each new candle we light expresses and represents that something new is happening. And at the same time something new is happening, there is still more yet to come. The center candle, the white candle, is called the Christ candle. We'll light that right here on Christmas Eve in those services as the celebration of the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who has come. And the truth that the promise of so long ago has finally been fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. And each of the four candles of the wreath symbolizes a different aspect of the Advent story. First, is the good news candle right here. And we start right here and we move up this way. That is the good news candle right there. We'll light that in just a moment. Second is the hope candle. Third is the pink candle, which is the joy candle. The fourth is the love candle. And the first candle we're gonna light is the good news candle. And we've asked Sam and Connie Summers if they would come and if they would light for us the good news candle, the first candle. He built it, it only seemed fitting that he would be able to light one of the candles, right? It's only fair. Yeah. Yeah, good job, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Good job, Connie. Way to support your husband. That's fantastic. (laughs) Nice going. Turn over to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. If you've got a text, you can follow along on the side screens. This is the good news text. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them. I'm sure they thought they did something wrong, right? Like they're out there minding their own business and then... Bam, all of a sudden, there's an angel of the Lord. It's like, oh gosh, what'd we do, right? And the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. Of course, they were terrified because they thought they did something wrong. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. Here it is. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. Good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born Today, in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger, a feeding trough. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven, peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. 
It's the classic good news text of the scriptures, isn't it? And it is a fantastic story, right? But when we sit in this room a couple thousand years later and we read it, it can frankly fall a bit flat for us, can't it? Like, oh yeah, heard that one before, right? Oh, here we go, Luke 2, it's the Christmas story. Know how that one goes, right? Like, yeah, some creative pastor we have pulling out the old Christmas story. And see, that happens for us because so often the good news becomes old news, doesn't it? It just happens that the good news becomes old news. But what I want you to know is that for those original listeners, it wasn't just good news. It was like staggering news. I want you to put yourself into the flip-flops of those early shepherds those first shepherds. And as they stood there, and as all of this went down, you simply cannot imagine how truly good that news was to them. They stood there that night as that angel talked to them about the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God himself, and they were going, what? You have got to be kidding. You mean to tell us that God really is still interested in us. You mean to tell us that God actually sent his one and only son down here to take the form of one of us? You have got to be kidding. It would have been nothing short of astounding for those shepherds on that first Christmas night. Remember, it had literally been hundreds of years since the last prophet of God had been on the scene proclaiming God's message to his people. They thought that God had thrown in the towel, that he had given up on them. They thought that their relatives, they thought that their ancestors a couple hundred years before had burned their last bridge with God and that God's silence and God's absence from their everyday lives was like the new normal, right? And you put all that together, it all equates to the fact that it would have been, see, no better news ever proclaimed than what those shepherds were hearing from that angel that first Christmas night. It really was good news to them. Because on that night, those shepherds were the very first to find out, watch this, how incredibly fond of humanity God still is. See, God had not given up on them. Their relatives and their ancestors had not burned their last bridge with God. And so we sit here in this room and we read the good news story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's been 2,000 years since that night. And it seems to me that in that 2,000 years since that original proclamation of the unbelievable and amazing good news of God's continuing involvement with humanity, that the good news isn't such good news anymore. For lots and lots of us, the good news has simply become old news. Yesterday's paper, dusty, crumpled, forgotten. And I don't think it happened all at once. More like just a little bit, year by year by year. The good news becomes old news. 
And see, what happens when the truly good news becomes just old news is that we begin then to gravitate towards stuff that sounds to us like awfully good news, but it's not even close to the true, real, good news of Christ's involvement with humanity. And I know that every one of you read and heard and saw, just like I did, the story of that man who was literally crushed to death at that Long Island Walmart the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, as it's appropriately called. As I understand, as the story goes, there was this teeming throng of shoppers who were so anxious to score Black Friday bargains that they literally whipped themselves into a mad shopping frenzy as Mr. Demore, who was a 34-year-old gentle giant, as his friends affectionately called him, as he stood just inside the front of that Walmart store. Mr. Demore, by the way, was a six-foot-five, 270-pound man who died of asphyxiation. That means lack of oxygen, suffocation, after being crushed by the crowd. A crowd who broke down, tore down the electronic doors of that Walmart store in frantic pursuit of Black Friday bargains. At least four other people were treated at local hospitals, including a woman who was eight months pregnant. Authorities suspect that because Mr. Demore was as big as an NFL lineman, that he was placed at the entrance of the store to assist with crowd control. And this past week, Mr. Demore's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit, right? We knew this was coming. Claiming that Walmart's ads, offering deep discounts, and I quote, created an atmosphere of competition and anxiety that led to crowd craze. They're blaming Walmart. The lawsuit claims that besides failing to provide adequate security for a pre-dawn crowd estimated at 2,000 people, by the way, Walmart engaged, and I quote, in specific marketing and advertising techniques to specifically attract a large crowd and create an environment of frenzy and mayhem. It's all Walmart's fault because they sent out ads saying how cheap things were, but that there's only a few of these cheap things available. But as I see it, this isn't Walmart's fault. It's not Walmart's fault. I don't think you can fault a business for doing what business does, which is to create demand so that they can sell what they sell at a profit. I don't think it's Walmart's fault. I think this is us. This is a humanity thing. This is our deal. Because see, this in my view is what happens when the truly good news of what Christmas is all about becomes just old news. And we fall into this place of thinking that Christmas time is just about getting things at cheap prices to give to people who don't care a year later that we gave them to them. Because when the truly good news becomes old news, we got to find, we got to go looking for things to call good news, don't we? For the couple thousand people who lined up that day in the pre-dawn hours outside of that Long Island Walmart store, the good news for them was that Nintendo Wii's or whatever it was that they were standing in line that day to buy substitute a product name there were the cheapest that people would ever see them, had ever seen them before, and that there was only a few. And so you'd better get there in a hurry to get them at that price. And police said this, those hundreds of people who did make their way into the store that day, they literally had to step over or around Mr. Demore or unfortunately on him 
to get into the Walmart store. And then, when it became clear that a man had died inside that store, and the store management began to announce that the store needed to close and that everyone needed to leave immediately, the people freaked out. There was almost a riot on their hands because they didn't want to leave without buying the stuff that was in their carts, even though a man had died when they were on their way into that store. And see, as I see it, that's the kind of thing that happens when the truly good news of Christmas time becomes yesterday's old news. Because when the good news becomes old news, we gotta try to find things to call good news. And I promise the things that we find to sub in for the truly good news of Christmas time, they're just wannabes of the real thing. They're not even close to the original. The birth, the coming of the Christ child, the savior of the world, and cheap Nintendo Wii's. Put those on the scale. Not even close. The truly good news that the angel proclaimed on that first Christmas doesn't have anything to do with shopping. It doesn't have anything to do with decorating. It doesn't have anything to do with a crazy, hectic, mad rush to cram everything that must be crammed in. Rather, the good news that that angel proclaimed all comes down to the truth that Jesus Christ came to give every person on planet Earth a second chance. That's the good news of Christmas time. That the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, came to give every person on planet Earth a second chance. The film, When a Man Loves a Woman, it's an incredibly powerful movie about a woman named Alice, and Alice struggles with alcohol. And as with any alcoholic, the addiction, it doesn't just impact the addict, but rather it spills over and it affects her marriage and her children and her in-laws and affects them in drastic ways. As a matter of fact, her addiction, Alice's addiction, just about tears her marriage and just about tears her family apart. Finally, this woman, Alice, played by Meg Ryan, she hits bottom. She wants to get help for her addiction. And it's near the end of the film. Alice has been sober for 184 days. And she stands up in front of her recovery group and she gives her testimony. Watch this. Hey, I'm Alice, um, alcoholic. Hi. I've been sober for 184 days. I, I drank my first beer when I was nine years old. My dad's an alcoholic, so uh, my mother liked to blame my lapse on his example. That way, she could hurt both of us at once. Anyway, I liked my beer and the ones that followed. And about a year ago, I got drunk. I, I couldn't stop getting drunk. It had never really happened quite like that, and I still don't know why. I've lied to everyone that I know, everyone I love, and... Um, I was ashamed and terrified and humiliated every day. Um, one day I got out of the shower, grabbed the towel, and decided to go get the paper. And nobody saw me go out the front door or at the curb, which was a very good thing because I was holding the towel just folded in my hand. <laughs> <sighs> I know how lucky I've been, because there were times when I drove my little girls around just ripped out of my mind. One Saturday, I took my baby girl on errands, and when I got home, 
I realized she wasn't with me. I had left her someplace. And since I couldn't remember where I'd been, I had no idea where, so... I spent the next few hours calling every shop I'd ever been to until finally the tile guy rang my front doorbell. They had found my address on a check. I rewarded him, of course, you know, by never going back to his store. My bottom was 184 days ago when my, uh, my little girl watched me wash down aspirin with vodka. And then I hit her. And when I passed out, she was alone with me. And she thought I was dead. And all of my life, I will never know what that did to her. And I know I have to forgive myself for that. And I have to forgive myself for what I've done to my husband. It's horrifying how much you can hate yourself for being low and weak. And he couldn't save me from that, so I turned it on him. I tried to empty it onto him. But there was always more, you know? When he tried to help, I told him that he made me feel small and worthless. But nobody makes us feel that, man. We do that for ourselves. I shut him out because... I knew if he ever really saw who I was inside, that he wouldn't love me. And we're separated now. He's moved away. And it was so hard not to beg him to stay. And I don't know if I'm going to get a second chance, but I have to believe that I deserve one because we all do Alice gets the good news of Christmas time doesn't she that from God's perspective all of humanity is worthy and deserving of a second chance. No matter how bad it's been, no matter what we've done, no matter how far we've slipped. God says humanity deserves a second chance. So much so that he sent his one and only son to become one of us, to die a terrible cruel death to give us that second chance. That is the one and only good news of Christmas time. Don't ever, don't ever let that become old news, please. Don't ever let that become old news. I'm going to ask you to take your things and set them aside, if you would, and just go to prayer. 
I just invite you to speak to the Lord about what it is that you're thinking about. Just tell God what's on your heart and your mind. ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you would for the next few moments. We all come into a time like this from a different place. None of us are in the same place. And maybe as you sit here today, you know that for you and maybe for your family that this time of year, the road that John the Baptist speaks of us making clear in our hearts for Jesus' arrival, for you, maybe it's just all cluttered up with stuff in the way. Maybe for you and your family this time of year, you've actually hauled stuff out onto the road. The opposite of what John the Baptist invites us to. If that's you, I'd invite you to use this time to let the Lord speak to you about what it is that you need to do to prepare your heart, to prepare the hearts of your family for the arrival of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And some of that stuff that the Lord might prompt you to clear out and get rid of, it might be difficult, it might be even uncomfortable. But the Lord's invitation to you today is to do whatever it takes to ready yourself, to ready your heart for Christmas in a way that you haven't done for a long time. Maybe you haven't done it ever, as a matter of fact. And maybe there's some more of us sitting in this room today. And for you, the good news of the one and only God of the universe who sent his son to give you a second chance, maybe for you, that good news has become old, dusty news. Yesterday's paper. God's challenge to you today is to do whatever business you gotta do with God to allow him to reclaim the real estate of your heart that you've sold off to make room for some counterfeit substitute good news. I challenge you, I invite you to use this time to give God back the territory of your heart that you've sold off to stuff that's not even close to good news. Stuff that just gets in the way of the real thing, really. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're in another set of people who've been searching for the true good news. I want you to know you don't have to look any further than Jesus Christ. God, see, he has delivered his son to you to give you a second chance. And maybe you've come to understand today how much Jesus loves you, how much he's given for you, how he died on the cross as payment for your sin, and wants more than anything to live in relationship with you. If that's you, you can step into a relationship with him right here. You can acknowledge that Jesus loves you immeasurably, that he died on the cross as the sacrifice for your sin, to be the savior and the rescuer of your soul. You can put your faith and your trust in him because of the blood he shed on the cross for you. And if that's you, if you're choosing to do that today, I'd invite you to express that to God by praying along with me right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you so much 
for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have, but today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that my sin has separated me from you. I believe with everything in me that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and I ask you to please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me because God, I want you to be my friend and I want you to change me and God, I really need you to just clean my life up, please. And if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, that's the biggest deal of your whole life. It's so weighty as a matter of fact that we actually ask people to tell us when they made that decision. And I want you to know it's not an embarrassing deal. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's looking around the room but me. If you prayed with me just then to yield your life to Jesus Christ, to invite him into your heart, would you be so bold to slip your hand up and to make eye contact with me and say, yes, today I receive the good news of the Savior of the world who came to give me a second chance. You two, both of you back there, way to go. The second chance is yours. And you too, right there, the second chance is all yours. Do you make sure I catch your eye, please? I don't want to miss anybody. Just make sure I catch your eye. God, we're simply undone by the reality that you sent your son to give us a second chance. From our perspective, we sure don't deserve it. But we're so glad that you think we do. And we worship you in gratitude and thanksgiving because of such a gift. And God, our commitment as a community is that we won't let the good news just become old news. That God will constantly be about walking in the good news and living the good news, advancing the good news, the good news of your second chance to all of humanity, God. And I pray that this time of year we'd be about giving away your second chance. Maybe there's some people, God, in our lives who deserve a second chance from us. Maybe there's some people in our lives who we need to reconcile, who we need to make right with, who we need to bury the hatchet. Give us the courage and the boldness to do just that, God, to do hard things, hard things that are right and hard things that are about the things that you're about, God. We love you and we worship you we receive your good news as a personal gift to us, God. We pray all of this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, our sin bearer and the savior of the world. And the church said, amen.